Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Like I said, we'll be in the end of chapter 15 and uh, chapter 16 from 1 Kings this evening. As we begin every time looking at the uh, overall picture of where we are and where we're going, uh, trying to put ourselves on the timeline of the map to be able to understand where we're moving from and to... um, it uh, is helpful for us to be able to understand where we're at, but we're looking now at uh, the king and his reign of Bashar. Um, we saw last week that God judging the sinful acts of a sinful man, Jeroboam and his family, uh, Nadab, um, and so we saw that act through a wicked king. Uh, through another wicked man, we saw that tension of human responsibility uh, and divine sovereignty, uh, particularly through God's sovereign means of, of secondary causes. And so we're going to continue looking at uh, Bashar and his reign, uh, but we need to be able to note a couple of things as we do. As we go through the book of Kings, uh, we find ourselves really in in what appears to be repetition. And repetition can can make uh, our Bible reading, particularly if we're going through the Bible in a year, very uh, tedious at times, where we think we've either uh, read this part before, or, you know, why, are, why is the author merely just saying this again? But often when there's this repetition, we need to be paying attention. There's an emphasis that is repeated time and time again that We need to be paying attention to what is happening during these things. Repetition, as we saw in in the book of Exodus, uh, through the great signs and wonders, was not merely just that God said, well, I'm going to do ten signs and wonders. There was this this, uh, emphasis as it went along, and each sign and wonder showed God's glory and His power and, and continued there was this accumulative effect of, of this happening through Exodus, of these signs beginning somewhat small and getting larger and larger, culminating in the judgment of the death of the firstborn, and even, you might even say, to the next step, to the death of those who pursued them into the Red Sea. That's the great sign and wonder that becomes the paramount, the uh, climactic uh, sign and wonder that they show, or you read through the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is not merely that a judge reigns and this cycle of sin continues, that as the cycle goes, there's this, there's this uh, emphasis that comes through it as well. I mentioned when we were going through Exodus that it's like a symphony, that it starts off with one instrument playing, one melody. And as it goes through, other instruments join in, and the melody remains the same. But as by the end, there's this big climactic finish that the same message becomes more full. So too in the book of Kings, as we read through it, and and if we merely just saw it as repetition, then we'd need to be able to, you know, it would be quite boring. Um, There was a king, he reigned, he reigned X amount of years, he did these things, he was evil, he was good, he died, he was buried in the tomb, His son reigned in his place, and if we merely just saw it as that repetition, then I think we're going to be missing the point, particularly as we think about it in the northern kingdom. That's where we are now, and that's where we'll stay for quite some time in uh, Israel. But even in the southern kingdom, 
that we see all these generations pass, and it's not merely that this is happening. There's, there's, this, there's this movement and this emphasis that needs to be brought to our attention as we're going through today. And if we merely just think and we just go, well, there's a period of kings, and we jump to the end and say this judgment came upon Israel or this judgment came upon Judah, then we're missing the point of that period of time that happens. Nothing really just happens in an instance, particularly when we think about God dealing with his people or God dealing with the world, that, uh, that uh, you know, some God is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but he does it so that people might be able to have a chance to be able to repent. So too, if we think and we just turn to the, the start of the 20th century and say, well, that's where liberal theology is. Well, no, that's where liberal theology kind of reared its, its head and there was this conflict within the church within this time. But you need to go back centuries before you can see where those seeds of liberalism came in and, and they went through and they, they crept into the church slowly and surely and they became uh, used and utilized and then until it really came to this climactic head in the early 20th century. Um, that these small changes over time appeared in the church. The second aspect that I think we're going to try and look at today is uh, not just merely the, the movement of this repetition, but also spend a little bit of time of, of talking about the political nature of studying a book like the Book of Kings. And through kings and leaders, how God relates to his world and how we can try and understand it and to do this. Now, normally I try not to be political. I try to be apolitical, and that, that means, you know, neutral in some, somewhat of what I say. And what I mean by that is that I don't seek to be able to talk about politi- uh, policy or politics or to be able to delve into political philo- philosophy and other aspects like that. Although I have opinions about this, they're, they're not worth listening to. But um, I have these opinions. I really want to draw attention to what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches. Now, what I mean by that is not the Bible doesn't say anything about this. I think the Bible speaks to all things about faith and practice in our life, faith and obedience, how we are. I think there's great things for us to be able to talk about in that aspect. Uh, There's arenas for that. Um, I think there's great experts that can help us with that, whether it's policy or philosophy of politics and uh, to be able to understand that. But I try and avoid that from the pulpit. Um, to be able to dive in, not to the the arena, uh, an arena that I'm not equipped to be able to teach from, specifically. But tonight, I want to look more generally about that topic and understanding. Based specifically on this text, how can we try to understand how God relates to his world through politics and leaders and policies and things like this, trying to understand some of these key principles that we'll see and continually see as we go through the book of Kings. So first, I'm going to start with what misconceptions that I think that are uh, that come as we go and reread through books like this, and we're, we're prone so quickly to be able to uh, seek to see the world through a lens of works-based theology, and I, I don't know exactly where this stems from. Uh, a part of us that is ingrained in our sinful nature that we think that we can do something of our own. We elevate ourselves and we boast ourselves and build ourselves up and think we're the center and it's based on us and instead of this weakness and dependence that it is. But it's true. It it doesn't matter. It's it's the immediate thing that comes up when our children see something that is unfair. That is unfair. 
They're, they're quick to be able to cry that out and say, well, they got this, or I got this, or I did this, and I should get this. It's built in some way. But the first misconception is that bad kings have short reigns, and good kings have long reigns. Now, generally, that is correct. Statistically, uh, it's just what we find. However, there's not a one-to-one correlation. Just because a king has a long reign does not make him a good king, and just because he has a short reign does not make him a bad king. Out of the total about 545 years of reigning between uh, Israel and Judah, of the accumulative kings, they reign for about 13.625 years on average between Judah and Israel. Judah has 345 years, roughly, of kings reigning in, for their reigns, 200 years in Israel. On average, Judah reign, kings reign for 17.25 years. So the, the kings in Judah reign longer than Israel, and Israel is about 10 years. So there's already a difference there. So you, you might just not be able to just say good kings rule longer, but kings in Judah rule longer. Now, there's a correlation between good kings and, and Judah, and Israel has 20 kings. None of them are good. Judah has eight good kings. Um, so, but on average, good kings reign for about 26 and a half years. Bad kings, nine and a half years. So there is a correlation between good kings reigning longer. So statistically, broadly speaking, that's true. But that does not mean that just because a king reigns for a large amount of time makes him a good king. Saul and David both reigned the exact same amount of years. Actually, Saul reigned longer because Saul reigned over all of Israel for 40 years, whereas uh, David reigned over Judah for seven and then 33 over all of Israel. So we need to be cautious about seeing that works-based understanding of how we view how these reigns work in these kingdoms. And because immediately we go to good works, right? How do we formulate why a king reigns a certain amount of time? Well, he's a good king. He's a bad. We want to try and have some formula in our mind to be able to understand how we got to that conclusion. But actually, look at the seven longest reigns that we have throughout Judah and Israel. Manasseh is an evil king, and he reigns the longest out of all the kings. Asa, we saw last time when we were looking at uh, Judah, that he reigns 41 years. Joash is, is somewhat of a mixed bag, 39. Josiah's good king, 32. Uh, so you see this balance that is, it's not always the same. Even those last three there, they all reign for 29 years, but there's no effect of how we can formulate some type of thing. So in this passage, we see Bashai, and he reigns 24 years. See this in the last verses of chapter 15, verse 33 and 34. The third year of Asa, the king of Judah, Bashah, the son of Ahijah, began to reign over the Israel at Tizra, and he reigned 24 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked the way of Jeroboam in, in, in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. So we see here... Uh, uh, Bashar, he's his reign is, is quite a long reign, 24 years. But he's wicked, he's evil. So we, again, we need to be cautious in, in seeing that, that what he does is actually evil. 
And as we think about God's hand and sovereignty over all of this, do we see not only that he establishes kings, he puts them on the throne and then just lets their course run out, that he actually is providentially ruling over all of their reign, the time they ascend to the throne, the time they descend from the throne, in various manners. Sometimes they die because of the sword, sometimes they die because of death, illness, war, all of these things come upon it, and everyone is marked by God's providence and sovereignty. You just think about that. A great illustration of, of God's sovereignty is that of like behind the face of a clock. What we see is the face of the clock. What we see are the hands moving. But behind the clock is all these cogs and gears that change and move, and this cog is small and makes it turn, This and all of these are moving behind the surface, and God's providence is all of like this. It's hard really for us to be able to wrap our heads and trying to fathom this concept, but here, 24 years is the length of Bashar's reign, all appointed by God, start to finish. And you put those cogs with other nations and kingdoms as rise and fall, all of it is for God. The second other misconception that we have during these periods of time is that you think that during the time and a reign of a good king that it will be good for God's people and the time where it is bad will be get bad for God's people. And during the time, what we need to notice is there's this connection between the time and reign of Bashar and also that of Asa in the northern kingdom, in the southern kingdom of Judah. But actually what's happening in here is there's conflict. Asa is a good king down in the south, and Bashar is a bad king in the north. But there's this battle between them. See this in Second Chronicles chapter 16, or First Kings chapter 15, verse 16, and there was war between Asa and Bashar, king of Israel, all their days. So here you have 24 years reign. Asa reigns all of the period of time where Bashar is king. And so right from the very beginning of Bashar's reign to the end, these 24 years is conflict with Judah. Asa is a good king, and yet the people of God in Judah are having to suffer because of the king of another. Do we think there's this time of peace or no attacks coming upon people. So it doesn't then mean that if you have a good king, that you're not going to suffer persecution or of any sorts. Or you think about the reverse. Actually, it's true that under Manasseh's reign, one of the most evil, wicked kings, is probably one of the most prosperous times that Israel will see. Probably one of the peace-filled times that Israel will see. And this probably rings true for Jeroboam the second, probably even Jeroboam the first. Although there's war and conflict in, in these periods of time, Manasseh and, and Jeroboam the second grow a great amount of wealth during this time. So if we merely just look at the world through this temporal lens, we're going to have a hard time to be able to understand what's happening. See Ahab, a bad king, and and Elijah getting uh, attacked. We'll see this later, but uh, when we, in our study. But just 
There's no formula. Again, our, our minds are inclined to be able to try and find some time of type of formula to be able to understand how all of this works. If we can just work out this formula, then everything will fall into place. And what we see in the New Testament is that we are to pray that we might be able to uh, pray and live in a lead a peaceful life. That here uh, Paul urges Timothy and, and encourages him to be able to pray with prayers and supplication, intercessions and thanksgiving to be made for all people. And specifically, he says, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. But here we're to pray, go before the throne of grace and ask that we might be able to pray for those who are above us, that we might be able to lead a peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified life. But also, Paul writes to Timothy in his second epistle, his second letter, and he says, actually, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So you put those two things together. Previously, we're to pray that we might live a godly life, but then he says that we're going to get persecuted for that godly life in his second letter. The truth of the matter is that God's people are always persecuted. Because it's not based on the, the good king or the bad king. It's based on the, the invisible warfare that is happening that Paul writes about in, in Ephesians chapter 6. That it's not against flesh and blood... The conflict is between the seed of the serpent and the seed of promise. There's always going to be that conflict that is there. Now, not to the same extent. I think all of us would much rather live America today than a place that squashes Christian liberty and religious freedoms We would much rather live here today with the minor persecution, I would say, compared to a place like China, or even places that are um, majority Muslim, where if you you say that you're a Christian, there's, there's threat of death. But to be able to just think that it all goes away, that's not what the Bible teaches. The good kings don't then automatically mean peace, and bad kings automatically mean warfare. That's not actually true. And again, it's hard for us to be able to fathom this from the Old Testament because there's not this one-to-one correlation. In the Old Testament, there's, there's the nation of Israel who we would call God's people. You see this in this passage, my people, my people... But in the New Testament, God's people is not found in a nation. God's people is found in the visible church, which does not, uh, is not bound to a nation. But what we do see is that principle underlying this, that the conflict of God's people, God's promise, those who come underneath his promise of the seed and the seed of the serpent, is there's always going to be conflict between the two. But Tertullian actually says, the early church father in the second century, he actually said that the, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That it's actually in times of these conflict 
and persecution that the church actually flourishes. We'll see this more as we uh, look later. But what does God do with this wicked king? So we've seen these misconceptions. How does then God actually relate to this wicked king? Well, the first we need to be able to notice is that within, in this book in chapter 16, verse 1, we find out that he does wicked, he does things that are as wicked to the, to the account uh, against the Lord. So what does he do? Well, we see in verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanai, against Bashar, saying. And time and time again, we'll see this pattern. Actually, we see it all throughout the Old Testament. When there's evil, when there's conflict, when there's persecution, when there's uh, dangers or woes, what does God do? He warns his people. And how does he do that? First and foremost, throughout all of his word, the basis is what he says. Exodus. You have conflict against God's people. Attacking. Putting a heavy burden upon them. What does God do? Before he does signs and wonders, he tells Moses. He calls the prophet out and sends the prophet to the wicked king. And time and time again, God's prophet is called forth to be able to proclaim his word, not only to his people, but also to his enemies. Again, we'll see this throughout First Kings. What you see is the pattern is the king is still held accountable to God's word. And the king is always underneath subjection to God's word. And the check and balance here in the Old Testament is the king is given a prophet. Now sometimes we'll see they listen. Some kings actually listen to the priest and the word of the Lord. But again, the basis is still the word through the priest. And this is actually Jesus' point in the parable of tenants in Matthew chapter 21. We all know that uh, parable of the tenants where the master of the vineyard uh, you know, plants of a vineyard, sets it all up, gives it over to those tenants. He goes away for, to another country and the, the fruit starts yielding. And, and uh, so he sends a servant to them. So what does he do? They, they send the servant and they beat him. They killed another, stoned another. He continues to send these servants, but finally he says, oh, I'm going to send my son. They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let the vineyard to the other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Here we see the pattern, and the Old Testament prophets are sent and sent and sent. So what does God do? He finally sends his son. And what do they do with his son? They try and claim the inheritance which is due to the son. This is exactly the the seventh and final woe which uh, Jesus describes to the Pharisees and the scribes. He explains that the ones who murdered the prophets... Just like your fathers, serpents, brood of vipers, send prophets, wise men, scribes, 
and you kill and crucify, flog in your synagogues, persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, and from the blood of righteousness, Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Bechariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. God, time and time again, sends forth his prophet. Sends forth his prophet. And the author of Hebrews says that he, he, in former days he, he sent forth his prophets, but now he sent forth his son. The practice is time and time again that the message is the same today. He starts with his word. He sends forth his son that we might be able to listen. So what does this prophet then say to Bashar, the evil king? See this in verses 2 to 4. And again, this sounds very familiar. Actually, turn a couple of verses later. It's like someone just copied and pasted and tried to summarize what was given to Jeroboam. But what he says here in verses 2 to 4 is, Since I exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel to sin, provoking me to anger with their sins, behold, I will utterly sweep away Bashah and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Anyone belonging to Bashah who dies in the city, the dog shall eat, and anyone of his who dies in the field, the birds of the heaven shall eat. Simply, the argument comes from Jehu to Bashan, and it's quite simple. I raised you up to be a leader. However, you didn't walk in the way that you should have walked. Specifically, Jeroboam is confronted and tells him, didn't walk like David. We see that same pattern here, although not, implicitly impli- uh, not implicit there. However, you walk just like the leader before you. I'm going to do to you what you did to him. I'm going to do to you what ended up happening to him. Now, what do we see in this this comment? Firstly, draw our attentions to to what God still calls his people. Here the people are going about worshiping through these golden calves that Jeroboam sets up in Bethel and Dan, worshiping all these false gods and, and being led more and more astray. Not worshiping God in the way that he has appointed, but yet he still calls them his people. The God, this great theological truth here that even in, a, in, a, in about their sin, God still does not neglect his people. But also in that, we need to understand that they are not Bashah's people. That here, God sees Bashah as a servant of God. He is placed there to care for his people. It's a very important thing that we need to understand that even the most um, horrid tyrant is held responsible for their wicked deeds, how they relate to God's people. We'll see this again later. But he's still accountable to God. Although he's king, he might think he's on top of the world, he might think he's the most powerful man on the world, he is subservient. To God. And how he deals with God's people matters. His actions made his people, God's people sin. We need to see that God deals with these leaders. Understanding this. That there's a level of sin that, that a leader is held accountable to. 
one of the great questions, I think, in the Westminster Larger Catechism is Westminster Larger Catechism 151. You could do a whole study on this question, but what levels of things make a sin more egregious? Now, every sin in the sight of God is justly deserving our, His wrath and condemnation, but specifically in this question, they, they say there's four factors that could elevate sin to a higher level. Now, again, you could do a whole study of this, but firstly, from the person offending. That what they're saying here is that, you know, uh, a child and a parent doing the exact same thing, a parent is held more accountable and responsible because they're leading and guiding others. Specifically, at the end of this, it speaks of people in places of office. Those who guide others or those who are an example is likely to be followed by others. That here, this is why the, the bar of ordained office or teaching elder and things like this is high. Because here, they're going to lead people in the way that they walk. So it's more egregious for others. And I see it all the time in our children. That there's patterns that I, 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 you look at them and go, well, where did you get that from? And you understand that it's you. And your sin is causing your children to sin. So there's this, this effect which happens, which is a great warning. Not only from the person's offending, but the parties offend it. That here specifically it says not only just if you sin, your position or power, but who you sin against. And the high one that's first on the list is, is God. Immediately against God, his attributes and worship against Christ. Now, let's take this into consideration about what this is saying in this passage here. When we think about a king in high places and how they deal with God's people. When Saul is on the road to Damascus and the blinding light uh, blinds him and, and Jesus comes and, and tells Saul and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? He doesn't say the church. He says, why are you persecuting me? Here, Jesus is up in heaven. He ascended into heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, ruling over all. Saul had not laid a finger on Jesus. And yet, Jesus says that he was persecuting, he was being persecuted by Saul as he was laying hands on the saints. There's this one-to-one -one correlation that God sees that his people is, is like offending Christ. Not only that, the nature and the quality of the offense. That here, specifically against the express of the letter of the law to break many commandments, contain of it many sins. Not only if it's conceived in the heart, but brings forth word and action, scandalize others, admit uh, all these other things. So you see, all of these aspects that, are, that grow and expand, and as a king does these and leads other people astray, specifically as we think about what they're actually violating in this instance, specifically highlighting the second command, direct violations of God's word. Or lastly, from circumstance of time and place, if it's on the Lord's day. Or other times of divine worship, 
Again, you see all these things that are lifting up. What, what is one of the first things that come? Are you appointed to a high position? Is a sin against God? Is a sin against breaking God's commandments? Is a sin against worshiping of God in time and place? And all of these things are happening during this period of time of the reign of Bashar and Jeroboam. What we need to notice is that although we've got a whole new biological line underneath Issachar, underneath Bashar, that they share the same DNA. Just as the Pharisees are, are called the sons of the devil, sons of the serpent, so too, here, Bashar is the exact same. He walks in the way of Jeroboam. He carries out and does all of this exactly the same. You see this in verse 2 as we read before. You've walked in the way of Jeroboam and made my people sin to Israel. Again, highlighting the word, here's my people. How does Jeroboam make them sin? Well, as a king in a high position. Misleading them as Jeroboam did by saying, well, we're just worshiping the same God. This is Yahweh. It's a golden calf, but it's Yahweh. Let's just change how we do. We'll just change the date. It doesn't matter. Small little things that mislead the people. And ultimately, again, that, that big sin that keeps on coming back, provoking him to anger, this jealousy, which is ingrained in an in, in understanding of the second commandment, the making people worship in a way that is not prescribed by God's word, leading him to jealousy. And so God is going to give Bashar a taste of his own medicine. Just as Bashar came onto the throne, taking the throne from Jeroboam, his household, it's going to go the same way. The same thing is going to happen to his house. The dogs will eat those in the city. The birds will eat those in the, uh, outside the city walls. The same words which were used by Ahijah in chapter 14, speaking of Jeroboam's judgment. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. Actually, if you go back and look at chapter 14, it, you can see exactly how it's very, very similar. There's portions that are taken out, and it's not to say those portions aren't important. I think it's just, here's the summary version of what was delivered to Bashar. And so Bashar's reign ends. Again, quite a short passage. He comes to the throne, and now, in verses 5 and 6, and the rest of the acts of Bashar and what he did, and his might, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Bashar slept with his fathers and was buried at Tizra, and Elah, the son, his son, reigned in his place. And we'll look at Elah and his reign and what happens to him. Again, it's very, very similar. But we are given something extra, which is quite interesting. Again, when we see this repetition, we need to really... Something that jumps out. Normally what happens is that you go from a phrase like in verse 6, Bashar slept with his fathers, buried in Tizra, and Elah uh, reigned in his place. Then you go something down to verse 8. In the 26th year of Asa, the king of Judah, Elah, the son of Bashar, began to reign over Israel and Tizra. He reigned two years. Normally, that's, that's regression, but we were given this extra verse. We need to stop and, and want, why are we given this extra verse? It's to draw our attention to something. 
Here specifically in verse 7, more of the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanai, against Bashan and his house, both because of the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands, in being like the house of Jeroboam, and also because he destroyed it. So here we're given this extra bit of providential information that helps us understand a little bit of what's happening during this time. Now the first half of that, we understood that already. That here, this evil um, thing that he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger just like Jeroboam did, this is something that's been repeated two times before that. So again, it's highlighting that, but specifically, and also, he destroyed it. Two reasons. The second reason, he destroyed Jeroboam's house. The author of Kings wants us to be able to understand that here, Bisha is judged for both of these two things. Because of his own sin, he's not being punished for Jeroboam's sin. He's being punished for walking in the way of Jeroboam and sinning himself. And being like Jeroboam. But he's also been punished for how he took the throne from Jeroboam. Now again, this is hard for us to be able to wrap our heads around as we tried to fathom that last week of trying to understand God's primary means and his secondary causes and how he is sovereign over all things, ordaining everything that shall come to pass by using all of these various things, a wicked man to be able to judge a wicked man. But again, Bashar's sinful desires in this moment and what he did through sin is going to he's going to be punished for. He's not let off scot free for taking Jeroboam's house. Again, it's hard for us to be able to fathom this. I think the best passage for us to understand is we, last week we turned to the cross to be able to understand the wicked deeds of the cross and how God had foreordained those things to be able to come to pass. I think another good passage is in Genesis chapter 15, uh, 50, where we look at um, Joseph talking to his brothers. And he's able to be able to look back on that time when they sold him into slavery, wanted him dead, and, and lied about it to his dad. And here he goes through these years of torture and torment in uh, prison in Potiphar's house and ultimately leads it to the palace. But he's able to be able to delineate and say what you meant for evil, God meant for good. The same action through a different lens. The sinful desires of the heart of jealousy of the brothers who wanted him dead. And ultimately he said, well, why not? Let's just make some money off him. What well, was evil intentions from their heart, but yet God, right from the very onset, he didn't turn it to be able to make it good. It was good from the beginning. And so to what Basha meant for evil... Here God is using for his good the punishment of Jeroboam. And again, like I said last time, we like to, I'd like to be able to jump to Christ and the cross. As we looked at last week, the dynasty of Herod, these evil kings and queens opposed to Christ and his church, who ruled and reigned over the whole length of Christ's earthly ministry, and also the whole reign of when the, basically the whole reign, almost, of the period of time the New Testament was written. So this, this period of time, when you think God would ordain all these things to be able to just fall into place and the church to be able to thrive and flourish underneath these godly kings that uh, seek to be able to grow, but that's not what God did in His providence. He, he 
had this Herod dynasty that was in there specifically. And we looked at all the, the kings and queens and their relationship to how they dealt with God and his church. But specifically in Acts chapter 12, we hear about Herod. Um, and here we see that Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And with that he pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This is during the days of unleavened bread. So what we see here is that you see this conflict that arises, and Herod is opposed to God's church. Now, who is Herod? Herod is appointed by God to be able to carry out, to be able to protect uh, the people via the sword, to be able to, as Paul says in Romans chapter 13, uh, Romans chapter 13, that is not there. Uh, Romans chapter 13, where it speaks of, of the that Paul explains that why should we be afraid of the sword? If we do good things, then the sword shouldn't punish us. That the, 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 those who in civil authorities are placed there by God, he calls them ministers of God. And they're to use the sword to be able to stop wrongdoers. Well, actually what we see Herod do is the exact opposite. He actually uses the sword to be able to punish what is good. The spreading of the gospel. And Herod was meant to be there, appointed by God, for the good of the people. But instead, he uses the sword to attack God's people. Now, in this case, at the end of chapter 20, we see here uh, Peter go to prison, and there's a great story in there. But here he says in verse 20 that uh, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king uh, Chamberlain, isn't that a good name, Blastus? They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's, uh, king's country for food. On a point of day, Herod put on his royal robes, took the seat upon the throne, and delivered their uh, uh, speech to them. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So what we see in this instance is God strikes him down immediately. The conflict happens and yet what we see, as, as you do throughout all of the book of Acts, is as there's conflict, there's growth in the church. That God's word continues to spread and God's word continues to produce fruit. And if we look and try and read the Bible to try and find out some form of formula for us to be able to fathom if things are good or bad or what's going to happen... We're not going to be able to understand it unless we have the lens of providence to be able to help us to be able to understand what is happening. If we look merely at the world in temporal sense, then we'll be left with an impossible equation to try and work out. The, what we see here is that in this case, the wicked king is destroyed in an instant. But in the time of Israel, when we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 16, actually evil persists time and time and time again. You turn in different periods of time, you'll see different aspects. 
But what's the warning? What's the thing that remains steadfast throughout all of this? Where do we put our faith and our trust? It's not in the world. It's in the Word. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 118, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Why? Because God is sovereign over all of it. Good kings, bad kings. His word continues. His word continues to go forth. Or I'm sure as the cooks have over their household, this verse printed somewhere, trust, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Where do we put our trust? Our trust is in God. The one who is sovereign and providential over all of this. We don't get the lens of Scripture as, as we're able to be able to see. We don't get to be able to see throughout the lens of history as we get, as we look back in the Old Testament, as we have under the divine inspiration verses like verse 7 that explain exactly what is happening and why it is happening. We don't get that. We get his word to be able to explain and point to his sovereignty over all things. As Jeremiah says, as he quotes somewhat of Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water. He sends out his root by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. It is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. And as we read through First and Second Kings and try and understand and try and wrap our sin, we're never going to be able to find that formula to be able to try and crack the code. But we're always going to be able to see God's hand of providence throughout all of things, that we'd be able to trust in Him, to understand that His He is in control of all situations, all circumstances. And it's only through lens of being able to, God's word, that we're going to be able to understand his world. The good and the bad. To be able to understand why persecution happens. To be able to understand why good kings reign a long time or a short time. It's all what God is doing. And his promises that continue. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.